three from 19. Yes! Bibby. Big three-pointer for the rookie from Arizona. Big Country Reeves needs to rebound from what was a terrible season. Does everyone like basketball? With the second pick in the 1999 NBA draft, the Vancouver Grizzlies select Steve Francis from the University of Maryland. This is, with the second pick, Steve Francis, the incredibly niche Vancouver Grizzlies basketball podcast, where basically we watch old games, we break them down in breathtaking, or depending where you're coming from, uh, painstaking detail. I'm Jeremy Allingham, a journalist and diehard Hoops fan who will never, ever let the Van Vancouver Grizzlies go. And like, I'm serious, like I'm a grown man who got actually angry because the Memphis Grizzlies wore the Vancouver Grizzlies jerseys. So that's me. And some might disagree that I'm a grown man, but like Jeremy, I'm Justin McRoy. I'm a journalist in Vancouver. I remember saving all the money I could when I was a kid in Victoria, taking the ferry over, going to the Sprite Zone for $13 for the upper deck and watching them lose game after game after game. But there were some highlights. There weren't many, but there's a few of them. And we're going to go over some of those games over the next uh, little while. The first is their very first home game. It was November 5th, 1995. The Grizzlies were undefeated in regular season <laughs> franchise history, 1-0, and were about to play the Minnesota Timberwolves. Let's go to it. Yeah, let's start out by, you know, one thing that struck me when we when I first started watching this game is the what I would call the perfect aesthetic of everything. We've got the white jerseys. I mean, I'm wearing the teal jersey, which I think is beautiful, but the white is even more perfect. It's white jersey, teal numbers, the indigenous theme piping, the perfect red cartoonish font for the, for the Vancouver over top with the Grizzlies logo. The warm-ups are unbelievable. Like I would pay 500 bucks right now for those warm-ups, though they'd be worth several times more than that. And the court looks great. It's got a really, like actually, it's not, um, it's not really in anymore, but the key is actually hardwood, if you noticed. Then there's the red circle where the free throw line is, and then it's teal inside the three-point line. It's really beautiful. And um, yeah, that's I, I, that was one thing that really jumped out at me because I just... It must be nostalgia, but I think it's just good design, too. No, I think it's good. You know, we always do the Vancouver-Toronto comparisons. We do them now. We especially did them back then for the, when the Raptors and Grizzlies were neck and neck. And the thing is, for the aesthetics in that first season, you have to compare GM Place, brand new arena, works very well for basketball, with the Sky Dome, which oh, was ugly yeah. as heck, did not look good, would have been awful to watch games in, frankly. And then you think about the jerseys, we look so ironically on those original Raptors jerseys now. There's a reason they never wear them. There's a reason they barely bring them back. It's a bit too cartoonish. The Grizzlies, from the first note, struck the right note. Then it was pretty much all downhill once the game began. Yeah, well, that's true. And one other point I just wanted to point out, because I don't know if we'll get to him again, but aesthetics-wise, Kenny Gaddison, starting for the Vancouver Grizzlies, <laughs> That dude looked amazing. Like 
He had the perfect flat top, the absolutely perfectly coiffed mustache. He's, he's jacked. This guy is huge. And he's wearing that white jersey proudly. And he had the double black wristbands. Like if I was lining up against that dude, I would be so scared and but also in awe he just looked absolutely amazing and another small aesthetics point uh brian winter's hair which like i don't know like he must have had a straightening iron that thing was perfectly flat with the perfect part down the middle like it really it really jumped out at me as soon as i saw it like a really goofy look um and then the production if you want to talk about that for a second justin um I was expecting the production to provide more fodder for us, like, but it really wasn't that bad. Like the production was pretty solid through and through. The only issue I really came across was that there's no running score graphic, which like they treated it like um, a 1990s NHL hockey game where you only need to know the score on commercial breaks, which is really actually annoying as a basketball fan. And then when it did come up, it covered like a third of the screen, which was annoying, but Aside from that, it was pretty solid. And, you know, we had Leo Routens doing the color, which I think kind of gave it that level of comfort of like, oh, yeah, I'm used to this. I'm used to hearing this guy. And he sounded the exact same. Exact. Him and Rod Black have not changed in 25 years. They're fine, right? Well, the Vancouver Grizzlies already had their opening tip-off to the season Friday in Portland, but this one really is the emotional one, the history-making one. Their first tip-off, first night in their own building. It's always special, as we saw in Toronto at the Sky Dome, Rod, when you can win that first one at home. It's great for the fans, it's great for the team, and you know they really want to get this one under their belts. I don't know anyone who's a huge Rod Black fan out there, but he <laughs> does the job you need to, and it felt like a, you know, a professionally uh, produced game. And that's all you can really ask for is when you look around mid nineties, local broadcasts, it's very hit or miss. And this worked. It was fine. And I mean, Rod Black, as you said, did a bit of the Rod Blackie thing, the Rod Blackisms with, um, they've really got their claws out now. And I think he said at one point, um, that'll get you out of hibernation quickly. I mean, look, as a broadcaster, it's, I'm just going to say, Fair enough. Give it a go on your first try. See if it works. It didn't, but I'm not going to be overly critical. All right. So let's take a look at the starting lineups for the game. Yes. Uh, we've got for the Timberwolves, so one Vancouver Grizzlies connection, Doug West. We've got a Raptors connection, Sam Mitchell, who I was unaware could transition from playing to being the Raptors coach so quickly. Then we've got Porter, who at that point was perfectly competent, but nothing more. And then we got Tom Gugliotta and Christian Blader, who were the only two players this entire game where you would look whatever they did and were like, oh, those are talented fellows. They oh, I don't know. I would push back. I thought Terry Porter, I really liked Terry Porter's game in this. I mean, unfortunately, he was one for seven from three, but he did put up seven threes. He had 17 points and 10 assists. And like, he was the dude playing in the way I wanted to see the game played, like a little bit of a dry, a slash and kick game taking the open threes when they came. We'll get to that in a second about no one, you know, being in the right spots of where our basketball minds are trained to be now, which is outside the three-point line. But uh, I didn't mind Terry Porter. I thought Gugliotta was kind of just okay, but um, Leitner for sure was was really strong for them. Yeah, and then uh, Grizzlies. It's funny how that first season, we've got Blue Edwards and Greg Anthony, who people remember, started lots of games. And then you have 
Benoit Benjamin and Kenny Gaddison, who were gone from the team after like 13 games, who for the first 10, 12 games were positioned as like, these are the core players. Yeah. And Benoit Benjamin, he scored 29 in the season opener against Portland. And then in the first eight minutes was the best player on the court by a mile and then disappears. That's why I wanted to talk about him briefly now because he won't come up again. No. He disappeared. Like, it's like he went for a drink or something. Like, it was it was amazing. He was great and then gone. And then he was traded in five weeks. And then yeah. we have Chris King, who, you know, we talk about at the end here. And then, yeah, it, Greg Anthony. The thing about Greg Anthony and the thing about this expansion team and the players that they got ultimately is that they were able to protect how many players? Was it seven or eight? It was eight. eight. Every team in the NBA was allowed to protect eight. And it's like Greg Anthony was the best of them that season. When you go by win shares, Ooh. when you go for P- PER, it's like statistically he was the most effective Grizzly. And it's like on a good team, he would have been fine as your seventh or eighth player. An energy guy off the bench can provide some D, can provide some quick points. But because he was forced to do so much as the point guard and as the season went on, the main distributor, he just looked overwhelmed time after time whenever he was forced to really carry the offense. Yeah, I mean, I was, I have to say, I was really frustrated almost, I think probably with Greg Anthony the most of any player in this game. Like, I think I just have kind of like personal qualms with his style a little bit. Like, he's got that herky-jerky jump shot. He really likes to take risks with his outlet passes, with like his entry passes. He had four turnovers that like felt like seven. They were so egregious. But if you look at the line, he had the best line of anyone. He almost had a triple double. And um, and as you pointed out, I looked at the Grizzlies stats for the season. Uh, as far as like value over replacement, he was he was like five or six win shares above the, the replacement level player, which I would say the eye test wouldn't tell me that, but clearly he's doing something right out there. And, you know, he ended up being a pretty good backup guard for Portland when they were a real competitive team. So Greg Anthony can play for any team in the NBA, basically. Let's talk about that expansion pool a little bit, though. Like, I have to admit, the first thing I did when I saw the starting lineup was go, really? (laughs) Really? That was the five best guys you could get from the expansion draft. And... As you know, as you pointed out, then I quickly learned that, you know, every single team protected their top eight. Like that is a brutal deal for an expansion team. So I I looked at the expansion pool to see like, okay, who did they miss on? Who could they have had? And amazing right off the top. And I should put the caveat out there. I don't know the background of like what agents were saying and who was telling the Grizzlies they wouldn't come here. You know, I'm sure there's all kinds of behind the scenes stuff, but just straight up who was available. Dominique Wilkins, the human highlight reel, 35-year-old, 10-time All-Star Hall of Famer. It actually turns out that he went to play in Greece that year. There was some sort of qualm going on between him and the Boston Celtics where he was saying they owed him money. And also probably he was scared shitless to come to Vancouver or Toronto. Yeah, to- you're, you're saying you really wanted another opportunity for a veteran player to refuse to play in Vancouver? <laughs> I mean, his brother came. Gerald came. <laughs> oh, remember how Gerald doesn't play in this game, but I remember they were overall, Gerald, he brings great D to the game. He's going to make a real impact. And yeah. he played 16 games and that was it. I should point out that Neek came back the next year and put up 18 and 6 for the Spurs so he could still play. Ron Harper, who anybody who's been watching uh, 
that Bulls documentary series knows that he's a five-time champion, great defender, not a great offensive player, but clearly a winning basketball player. Dale Ellis, the three-point sharpshooter who um, actually, I mean, he was 35 at the time. So obviously they're thinking like, they're thinking five years into the future, but Dale Ellis put up 15 points a game that season, 17 points a game the next season, and four years overall in double-digit scoring. That's like a three-point bomber who would have been fun to watch. Vernon Maxwell, Mad Max, he was only 30 at the time. Seven more seasons. But yeah, they could have had more marquee guys. The best they sort of got was Byron Scott, you know, the fourth wheel for the Lakers in the 80s, and we'll talk about him a little bit later. But ultimately, it's like... You might have, there are like 20,000 reasons why the Grizzlies ended up not working, but you wonder if there would have been one or two star players to give a little bit more sizzle other than Gerald Wilkins and Byron Scott in that first season, whether it might have helped a little bit. Yeah, and then just throwing it up to round it out, Daryl Armstrong, who wasn't highly touted at the time, but he went on to play 800 games in the NBA. That's that's no slouch career. And Rex Chapman, Twitter.com champion, Rex Chapman, who was a three-point sharpshooter? You know, imagine Rex Chapman slotted in for Pete Chilcutt, and, uh, you know, that's probably a couple wins a season right there. So the expansion draft was was tough, but I feel like there was a little bit left on the table as uh, Stu Jackson was quite passionate about doing. I never with Stu. All right, <laughs> let's go. Let's start looking a little bit at the game. Uh, it's not a well-played game. Uh, it is two bad teams. The Timberwolves were like the Timberwolves for most of their existence, which is to say not great. And it's also mid-90s basketball, which means we've got a lot of illegal defense, a lot of long twos. Oh, my God. NBA game that's pretty much based on, do you have a great point guard or a great big man? And these teams had neither of those. (laughs) And so... Look, it's still NBA talent, but there was only like five or 10 minutes of this 48-minute game where it really got into any flow where you go, this is actually exciting, dissolved of the fact that we're seeing a Vancouver NBA basketball team. Totally. And and like you touched on that long twos thing. And the last thing I want to do is get into like a Daryl Morey, um, a Daryl Morey lecture about long twos. Everyone who's an NBA fan knows about this, but I think the thing that really struck me about the long twos was how strongly it's been drilled into me as a fan that that is bad. Like I was like viscerally like clenching being like, oh man, what are you doing? Why are you shooting 18 footers? And the thing that drove me absolutely insane was Blue Edwards, who we'll probably talk about, but man, quite the chucker. That guy has an itchy trigger finger when it comes to jump shots. But he was actually coming off screens or doing a V cut to get the ball from the point guard and catching the ball inside the three point line, which like you would be benched immediately if you did that more than once in an NBA game now, like, which I know old school basketball was like, you know, catch the ball as close to the hoop as you can. I know it's an anachronism, but under the current thinking, that's just insane. Like, why would you want to take a 19 footer when you could take a 22 footer and it's worth that much more. Right. So that to me was kind of like my pain and suffering for the first, you know, quarter and a half till I started just like coping with it. You you have to accept at a certain point that, that this like 80% of the time, the shot that they choose is not going to be efficient. And it's not oh. going to be to something, especially with the guys on the court where they're really creating a good shot, right? It's a hope and a prayer. 
Anyway, first quarter happens. It's 27 to 26 Minnesota. Not much happens. The second quarter begins, and here's where the fun happens for the one player that matters more hey. than, than anyone else. And we're talking about Pete Shilkut. No, we're talking about Brian, Big Country Reeves. Speaking of Big Country, he's been really working hard to try to get in shape, trying to lose some weight, get in better shape so he can have better, more minutes and make more of a contribution for the Grizzlies. This is his rookie year, and they, I love the anticipation they bring up of, is country going to come in the game? Is country going to come on the game? And finally he does. And the crowd actually reacts. And another young rookie in the NBA, Brian, big country Reeves in the ballgame. They've been primed to accept him as this is going to be a big part of the future. <laughs> primed to accept. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> like we could have had KG. KG went well, we couldn't have because he was the pick before. But like just imagine the the like difference in our basketball lives. And another thing I noticed is just like, and I remember this too. No one wanted to call him Bryant Reeves ever. Like it was just big country. Like even in this first broadcast, it's like I think the big countries were like two to one ing the Bryant Reeveses. And I'm just like, the nickname was just like th there was a zeal around the nickname. I guess it was maybe like a marketing push or like a familiarity thing or something? It's a weird thing with how they sort of introduced him to Vancouver, both in the months before, because you're right, he was always big country, right? There was no, he got the nickname halfway through training camp. That was his nickname when he was playing for OSU. He came there, people fully bought in, but it was this combination of it's like, this guy is the future of the team. But also, from the very beginning, this is a large man who needs to get in shape, and we're not quite sure we're ready to play basketball. And it's like, those are two very different sort of expectations you want to give to a fan base. But the moment he comes into the game, they start explaining why it's like, all right, he's not going to see a lot of minutes tonight, and the reason is he's too fat. And until he gets thinner... <laughs> He's not going to be allowed to play. Oh, Benjamin, he's the star. And I and like the, the interesting thing for me is I had this kind of cognitive dissonance going where I was like, he wasn't as bad as everyone said. There's no way he could have been that bad. And so I had this like pseudo expectation that he would come in, not that he would do well even, but that I would probably watch and go, you know what? He wasn't that bad. He made a nice post move. He played a little defense. Oh man, was I wrong. This was, I mean, it's halfway between just a nothing, but with those expectations that you talked about, it was horrifying. It was absolutely horrifying. His first, his first sequence is he gets a bit of a tough pass and he can't handle it. It goes but off then, his hands. <laughs> yeah, but it was, a, it was a tough pass. I'll give him that. But then from there, he's hunched over after like two minutes. And like during free throws, he's like hunched. All the other players are casually hanging out in their rebounding spots and he can't do anything. He yeah. like, he's, I actually looked at the box score, his, his box plus minus, which is a dorky way of saying like what you would do over a hundred possessions minus 27 yeah. over a replacement player. Like I'd probably be like minus 50, like it's in the realm, you know, like it's just, it was insane how bad he was. And then I just want to throw in the John McKeechee sideline reporter interview with his family. Oh. Where there's another fat, like, I think it was a fat joke. Yes. Wasn't it? He says to his family, it's like, well, you know, and it's just fully accepted. But yeah, his, so the first possession goes off his hands. 
The second possession, he gets the ball. He's immediately dinged for three in the key. His first shot comes a few minutes after that, and the fans are excited. Brian Reeves, the shot doesn't go. You get that sound as soon as he shoots where the fans are like, oh, this is the guy. This is his first point. It's a brick. He plays a few more minutes, zero points in his first game, plays seven minutes in that second quarter, and then we never see him again. Rod Black calls him a project <laughs> as he leaves the court. <laughs> and then the funny thing, <laughs> I just so they just bury him. And then at the very end as they're leaving, they're talking about raising the game in Canada and they start to talk about other Canadians. And it's just, yeah, okay, big country. We forget about that. Let's talk about Steve Nash. Which we should have had. Um, oh, I just weed the Grizzlies. I knew it was going to happen pretty quick there. Um, one thing I got to push back on you, because this is the minutia that the people want, yeah. is that big country, the three in the key, Rod Black said it was big country, but I'm like 95% sure it was Antonio Harvey. <laughs> people, The people will be writing yeah. into us, McElroy. So, yeah, so, um, <laughs> so country played uh, seven minutes. He was 0 for 1. He has literally... Nothing going on on the box for other than that. One turnover, two fouls, and apparently one not three in the key. Second quarter, again, not much other than the saga of Big Country happens. At the end of the quarter, Minnesota goes on a decent little run. They end the half up uh, 53 to 42. The crowd sort of quiets down there. There's a googly dunk near the end uh, that is impressive. Leitner hits a long shot. Crowds uh, a little bit deflated. Again, the third quarter, I'm looking at my notes here, and uh, I have things like there's a couple Gaddison buckets. Greg Anthony has a nice steal. And then I just have sloppy play, sloppy play, sloppy play. Yeah, if you can see my eyes glazing over, this was the part of this exercise where I was questioning what I was doing with my life. It was funny because... Like I'm a dad and my kids went to sleep and my wife was at work. So like this was me time and I was having a good time until that point. And I sincerely started being like, I don't know if I can do this. This is so stupid. This is such a waste of my time. <laughs> Why um, are we watching garbage basketball? It, it was so bad. It was so bad. And there's no need to talk about it any further. Third quarter, Wolves up 76 to 62. It's looking like... 70% of Vancouver Grizzlies games in their history. That's a <laughs> loss that nobody cares about where they're clearly the inferior team. And then things start to happen. But before things start to happen, we get some interesting and possibly illegal sideline analysis. Yes. So uh, John McKeechee, who uh, some people may know from the BC TV days as the sports guy there, he was like, he was bringing some pretty interesting energy um, to that sideline reporting. You know, he interviewed Tom Arnold. He interviewed David Stern for a very strange, like 28 second interview. Not McKeechee's fault. Stern like seemed like he was high or something. But all of a sudden, I hear him say, on defense, when the ball goes in Christian Laker's hands, as soon as the ball hits the floor on the dribble, watch for Greg Anthony to go and double team on him. And my ears immediately perk up because, like, that's not something Doris Burke says or David Aldridge or any of the folks that we're used to uh, following too, now. It's way too specific. Well, that would also usually be what Routens would be bringing to the package, not the sideline reporter. And I wrote a note on my notebook that was like, 
is he in on the huddle? Like, what's going on here? Or like, and there's part of me that's like, maybe Mikichi's like an unknown basketball genius who just like sees the chess pieces moving in slow time or something. And then of course he does it again. And then there's a shot and he's just leaning over the huddle and he's actually watching the whiteboard X's and O's and reporting it back to the TV, which is amazing. But like, of course you'd be like fired, not fired instantly, but you'd be reprimanded instantly. (laughs) Because as you know, when you watch an NBA game, they show the huddles and it's like defense, defense, defense. And you're like, really? Is that all a coach does? No, they're, they're not allowed to show the actual competitive strategy. But here's Mikichi just like, hey, everybody, just say so you no. Know, Leitner's getting double teamed. It was actually amazing. And at the time, people would have just thought, oh, Mikichi, smart man, is always good, good job. Definitely not breaking the rules. <laughs> that happens at the beginning of the fourth. Uh, but the Grizzlies start to bring the momentum. We get an Antonio Harvey dunk that really brings the crowd alive. Yeah, there was the Tom Arnold interview. I love, it's so mid-90s Canada that Tom Arnold is the big celebrity get for this game. Uh, and then Byron Scott has a long two. And this is one of those games, the crowd comes alive for that, where it's like Byron Scott, we talked about it briefly earlier, fourth banana for the 1980s LA Lakers. Still clearly a guy who you would think could play. And this was like, Scott was the first of what we saw a lot in Vancouver, where it's like, here's the veteran who was good three or four years ago, and hopefully he's still pretty good. And for this first game, he was, you know. He he, He looked pretty good. He looked pretty good. good. He was getting those long, you know, we talked about long twos, but he was nailing them. He was providing that energy off the bench. But it's just, he was the first in a long line of disappointing seventh men who were last good four years ago, basically. Yeah, yeah and I mean, like, he he looks good. He talks a good game. He's a leader. But he's out the league one season after that. Like, he's just done. And you can see his minutes per game kind of dwindling. So it's just like, you know, as guys age, they can't withstand 35, 40 minutes a game anymore. It, the Grizzlies really could have used 30 minutes a game out of him. Uh, the way he was playing this game. And I want to mention too, that Harvey, that Antonio Harvey dunk was legit awesome. Mm -hmm. Like two feet from the middle of the key, thunder dunk. And I had been thinking to myself, what what is the point of Antonio Harvey? Like, what is this guy doing? And then I see it. He, He spike blocks a guy, goes on the fast break and just cranks one down. And I'm like, oh, that... I mean, that's what coaches love that, right? They're just like, oh, yeah, keep this guy here. First time in 23 years, someone has said, what is the point of Antonio Harvey? So good, good on that. But <laughs> Scott, earlier, I just want to laugh at earlier in the game, there's a segment where they talk to Byron Scott and he's like, I'm the veteran leader. I'm going to set the tone here. And he yeah, says, yeah. yeah, this team is going to be good. I think this team near the end of the year should be con- competing for the playoffs. And then during this time where it's now tied in the fourth quarter, Rod Black says, it feels like a playoff game. And it's like, (laughs) what else is he going to say? Like, we're for sure not winning 30 games. Like, I mean, of course it's ridiculous, but like also what we know about professional athletes is like, they can't do it without the belief, right? Like, the the idea of like no 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 i'm gonna go to vancouver i'm gonna be part of something that like no one's ever done before right like but yes of course i definitely rolled my eyes and laughed 
But at the same time, I get why he did that. And I wonder when we watch future games, whether there's going to be this confidence. It's like, maybe they're going to turn the court. Maybe this is a playoff team. And it's like, we laugh now because we know it never happens. No. This is a game where like tying it up and it's like, maybe they could go 2-0. There's seasons where they are like 3-3 and or 4-4 four and four at some point. But it's just constantly that carrot of maybe, not playoffs, not playoffs, just contending for the playoffs. Like Having 500 made, basketball? Yeah. Anything? And, it, and it never happens. And so this crowd getting excited, feeling like a playoff game, they don't know this is as good as it gets. I mean, really, right? Like, and, and that was one thing I was remarking upon was how dead, like it sounded like a Canucks game. Uh, during that third quarter, as it might, right? Same building. Um, but then, man, the fourth quarter in the OT, the fans really bring it. Like, there's good excitement in the building there. And you're right. Like, what a sad thing to say, but to agree with. Like, that was that was the pinnacle, man. The second game of the franchise. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, the, it's back and forth for the second half of the fourth quarter. Uh Eventually, Anthony gets along too. They take uh, the lead. Then uh, Blue Edwards has the ball in the final 30 seconds or so, misses two free throws, gets the rebound, fouled again, misses the next one. They reference the infamous Nick Anderson miss, which at that time was, was literally fresh. just, it was five months previous yeah. to that. Um, makes the fourth one, though. They're up by three. T-Wolves get a three-pointer. Anthony. Super clutch. Super clutch three from the corner for Leitner there. Leitner played really well in the fourth quarter. He was the best player in the game by quite a bit, I would say. Yeah, it's like he was the only one there where it's just that combination of athleticism, but also being able to make those shots. The coaching is kind of like messed up. Like why? Like he should have had way more touches. He he was, yeah, far and away the class of that. I mean, he's only, what, three years removed from the dream team at yeah. that point. So he should be peaking there. Uh, end of uh, fourth quarter, Anthony does a weird sort of half clutch thing, and for like 18 footer, he misses. After the buzzer, we will have overtime. Anything before we get to the climatic sequence? Anything stuck out to you, or it's like we're, we've been selling this is really exciting. It's still mid 90s basketball. <laughs> yeah, so we're 88, 88 going. I mean. Think about that, just that in its, of itself, like 22 points per team per quarter. Like it's it's a grind, right? It's not uh, it's not James Harden dropping 30 points and a half, right? So the only thing that really uh, jumped out at me about the overtime, which actually really brought out my, um, my Grizzlies righteousness, was uh, right near the end. I believe it's the possession that where the, um, the Timberwolves tie at 98-98 subsequently. But Gugliotta has the ball on the right wing and he jumps to take a three and someone's in his face and he does that like rat ball thing we used to do in high school where you jump and dribble and it's not traveling. Mm -hmm. But like, as far as I know, that's always been a travel in the NBA. It was egregious. And the whole Grizzlies team is like, what, like what's going on here? And the replacement refs, which we haven't mentioned that the uh, referees were locked out, mm -hmm. And they could only find enough refs to do two rather than three person crews. They miss this like egregious traveling and it puts the Grizzlies 
<laughs> pinnacle at risk, um, which, you know, in hindsight is very stressful for me as a Grizzlies fan. But yeah, brutal non-call. For, that was the one thing that jumped out from OT for me. Uh, Grizzlies are sort of ahead for most of the OT. Then uh, Porter gets a three to tie the game with about 20 seconds left. And then we have the end sequence. If there's one sequence that we've seen again and again as Vancouver Grizzlies fans, uh, it's this one. There's not a lot to choose from. 18 seconds. The Grizzlies will play for the win. 11 seconds. Anthony, watch by Porter. Six seconds. Four. Byron Scott. Two seconds. Anthony gives it to Scott. It's clear that it's like, okay, he's the veteran. He has the opportunity to get it at the buzzer. He misses it. And then with the garbage putback, having done nothing really this game, having done nothing in his career to this point, having done nothing really for the rest of the season for the Grizzlies, there's Chris King. His Chris, King! Chris King! Chris <laughs> King! <laughs> Man, like, so totally good point on Chris King. Like, I wrote unnoticeable and ghost like he you don't notice him in this game hardly at all um the, the play is quite interesting because the timberwolves actually pressure the grizzlies in the backcourt which is another thing that we don't see very often outside of you know nick nurse so they pressure blue edwards takes the inbounds pass and greg anthony comes to pick it up as a point guard should and you're starting to have that like okay let's get it going here let's get it going here and byron scott initially runs out to the left wing off a screen, but then immediately cuts back down the baseline and runs off three pretty well-set screens. It's like a, a hell of a play. And the ball goes halfway down. Like that was, I'd say in like seven out of 10 scenarios, that ball goes down. Well-drawn up play. And then I've, I got an amazing backhanded tip by Chris King. It was awesome. No, just great deck start. I love it if Scott makes it. No one ever talks about Chris King. Ever. <laughs> he gets that. The the fans go wild. Black says, a city's suddenly in love. Uh, <laughs> nice. That's good. I don't that, mind that. It's a lovely... The, the thing about it is, it's not oversold in a way. You know, it gives the potential of it's like, we'll be back having these memories with this winning team doing exciting things again and again in the future. And it never happens. Like, like this is just, it. Yeah, and just this is fun, man. This is so fun. It was like, then I got rid of the third quarter. Like, what am I doing with my life? And was just like, that is fun. That is awesome. And you're right, though. I mean, it doesn't pan out. Um, it's often not fun, um, sadly. But that moment was that was something. That was quite something. Yeah. No. And it was it was there. You could tell. I still remember as I was eight years old and hearing that they were undefeated, they're 2-0, and and it's like, well, clearly, you don't win two straight games if you don't. I was unaware of small sample size. <laughs> they're running the table, baby, 82-0. Yeah. and 0. It's like, clearly, this is going to be a competitive team now, and it's going to be a competitive team in the future. And it was just like, that is as high as it got. But it was, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, it's still a pretty good high. Oh, I mean, like... 
it's funny because I agree with you with my heart, but my brain's like, no, that is like a shaft job of the century. If a Chris King tip in is the height of your Vancouver Grizzlies fandom, like, but you know what? We're just going to, let's go out on a good note here, a joyous note. And you know what? It was awesome. I loved it. I love watching it again. And, um, you know, seeing that moment and seeing everybody pumped all the like nineties normcore wear and the crowd and, and like Brian Winters just like almost gobsmacked that they won. And it was super fun to relive that. And man, it would be nice if we could have some more of those. It, it had that great like sort of 90s ragtag underdog sports movie element to it. And yeah, it's like you could see something there at the time. We know now it's tragic, but watching it then, the excitement, seeing some potential with some of the Benjamin, you know, Gaddison, Scott, Anthony, maybe there was something there. We found out pretty quickly it wasn't, but Grizzlies fans had some opportunities to enjoy more big games. One of them came basically a month later uh, with a certain number 23 coming to town. But we'll get to that next time. Yeah, let's do it. So thanks a lot for tuning in to the premiere edition of With the Second Pick, Steve Francis. I'm Jeremy Allingham. And for Justin McElroy, thanks for listening. to 90.